Hello, I'm Alistair. I'm Andrew. And this is the Scene From Above podcast, bringing you news and discussion about Earth observation. Follow us on Twitter using at EOSceneFrom or the hashtag SceneFromAbove. This episode, we are back with some news and a discussion of Google Earth Engine and Planetary Computer. But first, I'd like to make a statement on the future of this podcast. This will be the penultimate episode that Andrew and I will host. We've been going for more than four years, and in that time, the podcasting, geospatial and Earth observation sectors have changed quite a lot as have our personal circumstances. This is primarily my decision, as I just don't have the time now to devote to the podcast, but we have reached out to some groups that we think might want to take over the show. The two of us will be working hard to try and hand it over if this is something that others want to take on, so hopefully there will be a future for Seen From Above. So here is the news on the 8th of June, 2022. OK, let's get into this. We're um, uh, a fair few months of news in lag. Hands up straight away to say there's at least 10 or so things that I can think of that we're just going to accidentally or deliberately skip over. So if, if we've missed some sort of big announcement, it's just that we just cannot compress it all in. So this is in no particular order, but in the terms of really great news that the World Cover uh, 2021 has been commissioned and will be released fairly soon. This was a pre-announcement from the Living Planet Symposium, or LPS, as it was <laughs> hashtagged all over Twitter. It would have been lovely to have been at that event, but sadly not. This sort of follows on this kind of trend of planetary data sets that we've had in the last sort of two or so years, and, and the um, Esri one from Impact Observatory has actually looked back at previous epochs as well. So there's a, there's a time series in that, which we've discussed previously. I'm going to be super fascinated to see what's coming down the line with the World Cover 2021. It's it's the one data set that the projects that I've worked on with non-geo-focused people are most impressed by generally. There's promised improvements in terms of some of the classifications and, and where people have complained. And sometimes with these sort of global data sets, you're always going to get people and complaints saying, oh, this doesn't this isn't classified properly. But generally speaking, this sort of new world of global data sets, I've, I've been so, so incredibly um, impressed by. Uh, I think it'll be a mega important data set. Yeah, I, I think we're in a really amazing place in that, you know, going back through my career, originally, people would be making land cover maps for the, the local area that they were studying. And then there became more prevalent national land cover maps. And then you got regional maps like the Kareen data set and things like that. And, you know, they had certain issues, but they were amazing in that they covered the whole mm. of a, a given region. And now we've got the entire globe at 10 meters, but not just one product, at least two, probably more. I love the fact that there's all this choice. And I hope what doesn't happen is that people just create data set that all compete with each other. What I really hope does happen is that these data sets fill different niches and that we begin to see applications and discussions amongst users about which data set is best for which sort of use and things like that. Yeah. And, and this one's touched me. This is the, the, one, of the, one of the few things I talk about in the news that I don't have to look at the link. I can sort of, everything I say is from experience. Yeah. So, so you know, you feel the direct connection to it. Okay, Microsoft, a bit more on them later, but it must be acknowledged that a credible data set has been released and is constantly being updated. Although it does seem not covering the UK and France and America and Australia, I just 
but global footprint of buildings data set. So this is, and this is one of these things that sort of connects the, the, the geo worlds all together. You know, how, yeah. how we sit as earth observation sort of uh, friends and our friends in the sort of mapping and the location tech, you know, that kind of area and the surveyors and all this kind of stuff. This data set sort of appeals to everybody. Got a lot of excitement. 777 million buildings. I don't know if they, you know, choose that number or clipped it or whatever. But um, you look at the commits and like, oh, 16 days ago, this has been up for 16 days. And all of a sudden we're getting super excited about it. It sort of makes me chuckle with <laughs> these releases. And But why is it important? input to deep learning and it's really really refreshing to see that it, it covers a, a lot of the areas of the world that are often without training data and it's sort of a theme of what we've talked about over the you know last four and a half years of are we nearly there yet with the yeah. deep learning algorithms and is this problem solved and remember talking to cosmic works about this kind of stuff and how much effort and all this and another trend that i've seen is Lots of models are being trained and they're now being delivered to the end user. Esri, for example, uh, I don't know how recent this is, but they're basically, they've got their own Kanban models within their API. And okay. within ArcGIS Pro, you can have, you can access their WellPad detection model and fire it at your WellPad data or their building model or, or whatever it may be. And they've got a number of these. You know, I could build a model or you could build a model or anybody could build a model and share it. So I wonder if the training is more advanced than the actual use sometimes. But getting back to the, the news, as I digress again, the building footprints data set implies to me that it's going to keep expanding. There's a lot of, of, of buildings in here. They've split it down into individual links. And if you're working pretty much anywhere in the world, you've got a good chance of, of some high quality data sets. You're right. It's interesting the regions that are, are covered. I, I guess maybe they're trying to cover the areas that don't have easily obtainable data sets for this type of thing at the moment. Whereas I'm guessing that you could go to something like OpenStreetMap and get building footprints for quite a few of the countries that currently oh, haven't been covered. Maybe That's true, I would say. Yeah. I think perhaps more true is they don't want to step on commercial toes. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe. It's it's hard to say, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say there's an obvious one to check, but um no, yeah. maybe not. Um, okay, goes eighteen. Hooray. I think I did see it. I, I retweeted it and that was about it, I think. And there's some images are back. Is the news. <laughs> <laughs> I love geostationary stuff. I mean, these the, the data sets that are derived from these satellites are phenomenal. I just think the full disk stuff is an amazing way of getting people captivated about a whole raft of different environmental issues on the planet. I mean, some of the, the low Earth orbit derived imagery is amazing as well. But personally, I think being able to see an entire disk of the planet and then animate it and see what's going on over time is just, that's so powerful in terms of demonstrating how fragile the world is and how rapidly it changes as well. Yeah, I like it as well. Okay, so next thing in my reel of news, Pelican, the next yeah. generation of satellites from Planet. I feel like we've all been on this journey with Planet. And it's been an up and down journey, I feel, with Planet. I feel that sometimes there's a splurge of amazing stuff and then it all goes quiet for a while. I guess whilst they're making all the things that then lead to the next big splurge of stuff and news and everything else they feel like your neighbor you know you know like it's like keeping up with the joneses it's like oh your, <laughs> well, your neighbor's got a nice new car or oh, planet planet are doing this and then everyone sort of tries to follow on almost 
our, our friendly neighbour, I sort of see planet. <laughs> <laughs> I think Pel- Pelican um, is stated to be a- another, you know, building upon the SkySats, higher resolution. There's this pressure, isn't there, from Pleiades Neo that's got some satellites in orbit. Yeah. It's got the Worldview Legion. Pelican, doves, what, what's next? Flamingo. They go, speculate on it, why not? <laughs> um, I wanted to um, tip my hat to the Geomod podcast, who um, way back when, I don't know, spoke with Julia Wagman about what's new in Earth observation. Go and check it out. Julia is a brilliant orator, highly skilled with her presentations in courses that I've seen. Really interesting, her takes on um, what's new in Earth observation. And while we're at it, there's some great podcasts out there. We're indebted to our podcast friends. Two more things I want to mention. This deadline may beat the podcast being released, but if if it comes out before then, the 13th of June is the deadline for in-person application for the Geo for Good 2022. It's the Google Earth Engine Summit, basically, but it's combined with, with a number of other things. The bringing together of people and the, the sort of people with high enthusiasm, and I think that that's a, a key trend with, with Earth yeah. Engine, high enthusiasm for it would be a pleasure to attend and my final thing in my news splurge <laughs> is Landsat Next, which is basically looking at the future of, of the Landsat program. So it's, I don't think it's going to be called Landsat 10, and it's going to have a lot more spectral bands. Wow, yeah. 25, in fact. Landsat Next has data that's going to line up with previous bands, but a lot more. And what have we been saying for, for years? I'm, I'm not saying that we've steered the Landsat program, but... Why not? No, so Let, we, we have definitely. I think we probably have. <laughs> yeah. Multi spectral, uh, multi spectral satellite data, free and open. What a time to be alive! Brilliant. Yeah, that's going to be really exciting. It looks it looks amazing. The the number of bands that they're going to put up there. It's really funny. I was looking at the the scheduled launch of twenty twenty nine. I was going, oh, that's risky. That's ages away. And then I realised we're already halfway through twenty twenty two. And it's like, oh, it's not that far away. No, that's, that's brilliant news. It's the right time to try and evolve the Landsat program. In that, I mean, it's done some amazing stuff. It's got a really good satellite in Landsat nine. I don't think it would be exciting enough to just put up another clone. So the fact that they're they're taking this on and they're building a sensor that works with the past data but also really enhances it i think that's going to really push a lot of other players in that sphere to really make sure that what they're doing fits in well with some of the open data as well Mm, yeah a new twitter group called dames of drones i love some of these group names they're brilliant and then i see that you've also added in women of waveforms which was one I hadn't come across. Yeah, they, they started on the 22nd of June. Sorry, gosh, I can't, <laughs> yeah. read, I can't even read dates anymore as to what's going on. It <laughs> definitely is time to stop. <laughs> June 2022. Right. Can't have launched on the 22nd of June because, as you all well know, <laughs> we haven't got there. We haven't got there yet. All of these groups working together with groups that we, we know really well on the podcast like Sisters of SAR and Ladies of Landsat and Women in Geospatial and all the other groups that we've mentioned and listed on episodes where we've talked about those. Yeah, it's brilliant that there's two more groups now. If this is an area that you're working in, then definitely check out those. And I think that's it for the news. Okay, so topic this time, final topic really, I guess, is Google Earth Engine 
versus planetary computer or planetary computer versus Google Earth engine, depending on your viewpoint, I guess. <laughs> and we have always been fans of Google Earth engine, or I should say I have always been a fan of Google Earth engine, not, not willing to, but no, <laughs> shame Alistair. <laughs> um, and planetary computer has been around for a while and we've not really talked about it much. We made attempts to try and, uh, speak to the guys, but it, it didn't quite work out at the time. So we, we sort of missed that one. And while I think we've paid lip service to it, we haven't really discussed it too much. Mm. So I'm going to try and write this as a blog post. And so I've written this in sort of semi note form at the moment. So if it doesn't make too much sense, hopefully the, the blog will do. I'll give a bit of background first and then sort of try and step through I think if you'd asked me in December 2017 when we started, what were Microsoft doing in uh, like the Earth observation, geospatial, GIS sort of type world, I think I honestly would have struggled to say anything more than Bing Maps. And if we jump forward to today, so June 2022, and, and obviously everything I'm about to say about both pieces of what shall I call them, software? Is, is that a fair um, word? Yeah. Are they ecosystems? Oh, no, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> both yeah, things, software. Both, both geo things. I think software <laughs> is the easiest thing to sort of get in your head. I mean, they're kind of repositories. They're more than that, but I'll, yeah, I'll get there. As long as you don't say platform. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we are, platform. I mean, yeah, in June 2022, everything changes, but basically Google Earth Engine still exists and it's had incredible growth. It's got a huge user base, I'd say, and it's got a heck of a lot of fans. It makes sense. I mean, Google Earth, as we've discussed before, is probably the, the killer app, if there is such a thing in geospatial. But one of the trends that's sort of been sneaking up in the last few years is the AI for Earth program from Microsoft. And as we talked about earlier, there's the building footprints data. There's a whole lot of things that, that Microsoft have got involved with. The beating heart of that is probably the planetary computer. It all sort of ties it in and i think what's kind of spurred me on to talk about it today is that at the start of lps 2022 there was this big new release of planetary data and and it sort of brought up to speed and kind of made it much more comparable with the data available to uh, google earth engine even though google earth engine has more data sets um i did a quick check before we logged on here and I can see 82 different data sets um, from the planetary computer. I, I'd imagine you're probably close to three or 400 maybe in Earth Engine. And of course, you can bring your own data to it as you can with, with planetary computer. But this big release of data included SAR data. And in particular, it included a SAR data set called SAR RTC, train corrected data. And that is a key difference between um, Earth Engine and the planetary computer so they've, they've they've taken the grd which is coming from both uh platforms <laughs> sorry <laughs> um but i really don't know what the, the combined term for these things are but let's say platforms now instead of software i don't know um but they've, they've taken the grd from from that and, and made it more usable and in fact that's the sentinel one data set that planetary computer are generally recommending you use i think it's something that i've wanted to talk about before as well which is that I think the most impactful companies working within geo aren't necessarily what you describe as geo companies. And Microsoft and Google are probably pretty good examples of that. There are several others, Apple, for example, Apple Map. It's kind of embedded in a lot of the big companies. 
and they see the value of this, the spatial, but they're not overwhelmed by it. They don't make it their be all and end all. But I think the biggest innovations that have happened, especially in the software side, aren't necessarily driven by your spatial incumbents. So the sign up process is pretty much the same for both pieces of software. You need, for Google Earth Engine, you need a Google account and you need to then apply for access. For planetary computer, I'm going to abbreviate to PC and Google Earth Engine to GEE um, where I can. It's basically the same. You just request access. And then generally speaking, within 48 hours, you get access or you may not get access. I don't know how <laughs> they decide it. One thing I would say is when I requested access to Google Earth Engine, which is going back a few years now, it was within a couple of hours. Whereas when I requested access to planetary computer, which is going back a couple of months, it took maybe two days, something, three days, something like that to give me access. Also logging in to Google Earth Engine through the uh, Google account is super easy. Like it, you literally just go there and it opens up everything that you need in order to get going. And maybe it's a function of the fact that I live in Google anyway, but I just find it really hard managing my Microsoft accounts. I just want one account for me that just lets me log into everything on Microsoft. Why there's so many hoops I seem to have to jump through with planetary computers. So that's what I would say about the signing up and the logging in process is I think Google have nailed it slightly more. Yeah. The licensing, I find probably the most difficult thing to get my head around. And it's not just me. So in this case, in this particular example, I feel I should make the disclaimer and say, this is just purely for research. We don't make any money off the podcast. This is just a very subjective overview. I think it's safe to say neither of us use either of these day to day. Do we? No. And the thing to bear in mind with both of them is software changes incredibly fast. So do portals or <laughs> I've heard another word for it. So, so it's, whatever they are, they change fast. And we are in this just incredible high velocity data time. Let's first of all look at Earth Engine. It was first to the party. And I don't think it's pretty far-fetched to say that it, it radically changed Earth observation. It's the first platform of its type to make available the search and process on all of the data. And when I say all of the data, I mean the available data at the time. And in terms of time series, I mean all. You know, they're not <laughs> cherry picking just the nice data from 2019. <laughs> they're giving it, giving it to you all, all of it. It was a generally shocking, albeit quite pleasant experience when I first came across it. And I, I think I went from this sort of loose idea that the cloud, whatever that was, was the solution to, you know, this all of the data issue. And that, in my mind at the time, was some sort of most likely a AWS EC2 instance. This cloud idea became a very powerful JavaScript front end that I first saw that looked very cleverly like Google Maps. <laughs> but with this sort of hidden or powerful kind of underbelly, you had this kind of panel, I guess, that you can type into. It looked like a kind of Google Maps on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's I, not going to be in the post. <laughs> I think I would agree with everything you've said that I remember going to London to a training workshop and I had created my account ahead of that and I'd logged in and I'd sort of scrolled around a bit. I don't think I'd even loaded up a Landsat scene. I'd basically scrolled around and seen what it does and go, oh, this is nice. And it was only when Noel Gorolik, who was giving the course, it was something like 10 lines of JavaScript, if that, 
and created an NDVI average based off of, I guess, Landsat data. But in the time that he was explaining what he'd done, this piece of JavaScript had gone off in Google Earth Engine and had processed the entire catalog of Landsat data. And I think it was that that absolutely stopped me in my tracks because I was sort of thinking, oh, okay, so he's used this track and row to to create this and then suddenly he was going no this is the entirety for the entire globe all of the landsat data ever and it's all just processed in i don't know the 30 seconds or whatever it was that he was explaining it and that was just that was a game changer in terms of where we could get with processing of satellite data it was everything that we'd been talking about for 15 years or more and when you see it in the hands of somebody who really knows what they're doing you begin to suddenly understand exactly where this could go. So they kind of owned the space. And really on the scale that it operates, it had, and I use the word had, no direct competitor. I, c- I couldn't think of anything that would rival it, you know, four years ago. No way. And I first came across Earth Engine by a PhD student randomly at a QJS user event. Uh, I just presented something about uh, computer vision and I was you know, feeling quite pleased with myself. <laughs> and uh, he, he told me about this Google thing. And I honestly, you know, Hannah honestly thought he was mistaken. I was like, no, 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 no. Google Earth is, you know, it's incredible, I know, but it's just a viewer. But, you know, me being me, I, I did feel like I had to check it out. And I was just like, what? Like you were, like blown away and then instantly hooked. So planetary computer follows a few years later. So it's been out. I think two years probably. And I I don't think I had the first initial same reaction like I did about Earth Engine. I don't think I was that excited about it. People only had limited access. They were sort of cherry picking the first users. I wasn't in a rush to get on board of it. Mm -hmm. But as as I said before, with more data, more user base, with a huge volume of support out there. And again, I'll talk a bit more about this in a second. I feel it's a much more compelling reason to have a deeper look at it. And while it isn't the wow, it's a game changer moment, and I don't really feel comfortable saying those words, I think it has the potential to outlast Earth Engine. And that's quite some statement, I think. So what is Planetary Computer? It's a search and discovery tool through this expanding data catalogue. And I think the Explore tool is pretty much the best in class at the moment. It has this ability to give you 10% cloudy images rather than giving you the whole catalogue straight away. It kind of says, you're probably not going to be interested in those. You can still get them. You can filter down to it. But the first look isn't this huge flow of data at you. It's just giving you the good stuff. (laughs) And it's giving it to you fast. My God, it's fast that comes down from their Explorer. So that's the sort of first component. But it's also a processing hub and it allows you to build applications on top of it and deliver applications. And if that sounds familiar, well, it should do really. It's basically Google Earth Engine. It's, it's, it's the same sort of premise. For me though, and maybe you can correct me if I've got this wrong about Google Earth Engine, but I think the thing about planetary computer that will probably mean that it has longevity is the fact that it is being built on all of the tools that we've been talking about in the past four years on the podcast. So things like Stack, which is basically how you search for various different or within data sets. And then embedded Jupyter Notebooks and things that you can launch on, well, it says on the hub, but that's effectively in Azure. And it's really well documented. 
but these things are not tied to any one thing. And you also can get an API that you can just pull uh, the information into your own applications and things like that. So developers can do more, I think, through this than they necessarily can with Earth Engine, where you're sort of tied, I think, to the Earth Engine sort of front end and yeah. and everything that goes around that. And that's that's not bad because you get an amazing experience with Earth Engine. But I think Planetary Computer does a subtly different thing. So this is like the key point that I'm ju- literally just about to... Oh, sorry. Uh, get to- no, it's fine, it's fine. <laughs> because you, you're, you're dead right. But let's try and look at some of the, the key differences. The first and the big one is that Earth Engine and Planetary Computer, my access at least, is free. But when something is free, and get ready, <laughs> you've heard this story before, it can be turned off. And that is obviously a problem. And Google has sadly history on this. And it does rile people, especially people who've come to be dependent on whatever the thing that is now being turned off is. Let's assume that they both get turned off. And what happens if they're both turned off? Well, your Google Earth Engine JavaScript slash Python code becomes pretty useless. You're going to need to rewrite it. Basically, principles are probably similar, but you are going to need to do some pretty significant rewriting it. If your planetary computer access gets turned off and you've taken a local copy of your code, I mean, I'm assuming that you've got local copies of your Earth Engine code as well. I think you're going to be okay, generally, because it's built around the open tools and the open standards. So if it gets turned off, you're probably going to be able to migrate much easier than Earth Engine to whatever it may be. And that's quite a compelling thing for me because there's not much of a crossover between Open Data Cube and Planetary Computer in terms of code. However, I'm not so worried about this kind of stuff. I know people are, but I, I don't I don't see Earth Engine going away in the short term or anytime soon. The technology changes so fast, I've had to rewrite code all the time. Um, Earth Engine certainly has the foothold with the academic institutes, I'd say. Personally, if I was an employer, I'd find this way more concerning than whether it's going to be turned off or not. We're on this sort of path now of having a set of very educated, intelligent, smart people who are experts on Earth Engine. And this may well be brilliant for academic careers, but I honestly don't see many companies using it commercially. I may be completely wrong. Again, this is my own bias. And those who are using it, I think, trying to use it sparingly. I still think it's best in class. I, I think if you had to say which one's the better of the two, I, I think you'd probably make a good case for Earth Engine. The issue is cost. I think it's very expensive commercially. And I am absolutely completely convinced that the future of Earth observation is open source. Completely convinced of it. And maybe planetary computers being used in academic environments. I, I, I don't know. I doubt it extensively, but I'm pretty sure that that will grow over time. What are the pain points then of Earth Engine? Commonly, people say it's the black box algorithms. And I, I think I accept that. But, I mean, I'm going to be controversial here again. Do you really understand everything that you're importing in your code? Do you understand all the libraries, what they're doing? We have this sort of reliance upon, you know, like when you run a computer vision algorithm, do you know all the science behind it, all the research? Maybe you do. Probably I don't. (laughs) But I'm happy to use it. It seems to to give me good answers. And the thing that kills me with Earth Engine, I think the deep learning way that they've adopted is clunky. You have to take the data out of Earth Engine to train it. Okay, yes, it's compatible with the cloud, but I'm just, I'm sure there's reasons. I'm just amazed by the workflow. And my final sort of criticism of Earth Engine, because you know I'm a big fan and, you know, it kills me to say all these negative things in a way, but I feel like a hobbyist on Earth Engine and I don't really use it anymore for a lot of the reasons that I've sort of highlighted above. 
and I just don't feel like I'm sure there is this current obvious incentive for me to use it. Their vagueness around commercial use on their license, I think, is the thing that really stops anyone outside of academia. I've come across companies that justify to themselves, oh, well, we're doing this for a research component of our project. But it's like, I think it's too unclear. Either they need to really just be explicit about what is and isn't in scope for use of Earth Engine, or they just need to say, you know what, anyone can use it. But then that runs the risk of it being absolutely hammered. Yeah, yeah. So be careful what you wish for in, yeah. in, in that sense. No, I, I guess, get it. I guess it depends what their long-term strategy is. I mean, you're right. They're training up a huge number of people who know more about Earth observation, satellite data, global data sets, all of that stuff. However, their ability to code outside of Earth Engine might be a lot weaker. However their ability to code might be so much better because of Earth Engine. It's really hard to know. I think there are so many strengths that any weaknesses we come up with are going to be pretty minor compared to the benefit that Earth Engine has given the Earth observation community. So let me give you my six things that I think make Google Earth Engine stand out. (laughs) Andrew's clickbait. (laughs) Andrew's clickbait. (laughs) I think there are some seriously brilliant things about Earth Engine. Firstly, you can just go to the website with your Google account and run scripts in a familiar GUI. Do not underestimate that to the end user. I reckon 40% of companies out of the box would just botch that step straight away. (laughs) Google are just brilliant at making things easy. I love, secondly, that you can give a link to anybody, assuming they've got an Earth Engine account, to the code that you've written, and it will just magically appear to them. They can change it, send it back, run it, use it, do whatever they like. I love that. I can persistently store all my code on my Google account. I like that as well because I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think actually it's, it's all, it's all um, versioned and gitted and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> I don't sure that's the right phrase, but it's all versioned behind the scenes. Um, the user support was incredible. It's my fourth thing. Earth Engine documentation comes with script examples. The data comes with script examples hyperactive Google groups where the developers get in there and answer questions as well. Stack overflows bursting with questions. It, it's alive, isn't it? It's a living thing. Five, I think that Google genuinely like Earth Engine. They've built conferences around it. They employ a lot of people on it. It feels to me that it, it's a sort of defining kind of passion thing for them. And finally, I think the Python, the CoLab stuff that that integrates with it has dramatically improved to the point where accessing Earth Engine is potentially the most rich experience through the notebook than it is through actually the the Java script bit. Okay, so I hopefully have redeemed myself in the (laughs) Earth Engine world. So the case for planetary computer, as you've sort of alluded to, it's not so obvious to the everyday user. And please, that's not me calling you an everyday user or anybody <laughs> looking at it as an everyday user. But I was puzzled as how I start. How do you start this thing? What, what is it? And I mean that compared to the incumbent Earth Engine, because basically an Earth Engine, I log in, oh, okay, that must be where I put the code. That must be the run button. Something's happened. But with Planetary Computer, once you've got your account, it's basically similar but it's more kind of codey developery, and yes. you basically get an account, you spin up a server by choice of whatever it is, three or four or five radio buttons. I, I 
generally just use the first one because it's like the, the simplest, quickest thing to spin up just a CPU, but you can get a GPU and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's there waiting for you. It's Jupyter Lab with a folder crammed full of examples. Most of the environments that you're going to need are pre-cooked. Okay. You can conda install or pip install, I guess, via the command line prompts if you want to add those individual libraries. Maybe for the end user, the intimidating thing is it's what you're going to do. It's a blank screen. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. If you open the readme, then maybe it's less of a blank screen, but it's a different first experience. You're going to need to know Python or R. If you're going to be using these colossal resources of processing and data, you're going to have to be able to program. Not loads, but you're going to have to be able to program a little bit. It's a must. Both Planet Computer and Earth Engine could quite conceivably just be used for data exploration. And as you've said before, stack, it's understated, not by us, but understated probably by, by the general user because it's a nice standard, perhaps the most important thing that's happened in our time doing the podcast. And it's amazing how many organizations and people within Earth Observation still don't know what it is and still don't really understand why you would want to process on the cloud. Yeah, everything is a slow step forward. Both could be used for data processing and data delivery. Both have huge time series. Both are actively supported. With that said, if you're already using Earth Engine, what's the trigger to move across to planetary computer? And I think that's probably what a lot of people will be saying. You can bring your own local processing code that you've been working on on your local computer, and it will generally work. You can basically bring any open code to the planetary computer. And for me, this is enough to be tipped. Yes, there is a planetary computer library, but it doesn't overwhelm it. And just looking at the, the two different systems. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> So I, I had a, a question listed on the show notes that was about whether or not if you were being taught academically or maybe just trying to learn about Earth observation, whether one is better or worse for diversifying skills. And I think they, they both actually, when I think about it, target different things. Now, obviously, you need coding ability in both. But I would say that Google Earth Engine is probably going to appeal to people who want to use Earth observation data or global spatial data sets in order to answer questions. And they're going to be more on the sort of scientific mindset. And although you can do the same with planetary computer, just looking at the types of tools and the types of data formats and things like that and APIs that they're linking into, I think if you want to have a career in geospatial or earth observation software development, software engineering, then probably you're going to want to have a look at planetary computer because some of the tooling that they've put in that links through to their data and to the compute power and everything else, it is absolutely on the money. It is the tools that are being used right now and are being heavily developed and are going to define, I think, cloud computing around Earth observation and, and global geospatial data sets. Each of them is trying to attract a different audience, even though technically both offer pretty much the same sort of thing. Yeah. So I think I've walked you down the sales path. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just going to try and push you over the edge now so you can commit to one. The code you're going to write on planetary computer will persist if you save it into the root directory. If you save it into the thing that it loads on default, it's going to disappear. So save your code into the root directory. There isn't an obvious way to share the code like there is in Google for the platform. Okay. You could just push it to GitHub 
which after all is owned by Microsoft. <laughs> and perhaps, perhaps they could smooth this and perhaps they could, you could smooth the, the pulling of code in from existing repositories. I'm sure it can be done. Guess what? Deep learning. Subjectively, it's going to be simpler. You can do it all within the notebook. There are examples on the, on the hub that work with um, the Radiant Foundation's ML hub. There's a lot of scripts out there. It's nice having this around for a, for a while, for a fair few months, to be able to say that there is a body of, of code out there. Is it the same size as the body of code of Earth Engine? Absolutely not. But there is enough there to get you going. So trying to sort of wrap this up and, and, and summarize it. Well, I think that Planetary Computer has kind of looked at Earth Engine. Maybe they'll never admit this. Maybe it's not true at all. Maybe it's just my anecdotal mind spinning up um, versions of, of, the, of the past that don't exist. But I think that they've kind of considered what's Earth Engine good at? Let's try and match it. And what does Earth Engine not really touch? And let's try and touch it. I saw this tweet. Maybe it came out of LBS again. I don't know. <laughs> um, but they're going to give you direct access to the planetary computer from ArcGIS Pro. Now, I don't have ArcGIS Pro, but I think that's quite a smart move because there's an admission in that plan, which is to say a lot of our users are going to be GIS users using Arc, whether you like it or not. They're not excluding other softwares or they're not excluding other options, but they're giving you the option to draw straight into it. And partnering with Esri is not a terrible move, I would say. Clearly, data is being added. You can spin up machines with GPUs as you can with Earth Engine. Um, there's even one with QGS enabled. I haven't, I haven't tried that. I was going to say, yeah, that looks pretty amazing. They've got a pretty active discussion group on GitHub. Okay, when more users come to it, will it be as active or will it be overwhelmed? Uh, this kind of stuff. I think that they've done a lot of thinking about this. The danger we have, Earth Observation doesn't and shouldn't aim to look like a bunch of nails to be hit by a single hammer. I think being a pluralist in Earth Observation is a sensible move. You're going to have to try and fit the tools to the problem and not the tool to the problems. If you yeah. draw on the pluralism of it all, you can draw on other tools. You can port them. You can adapt them. You can, you can learn from different things. So Earth Engine or planetary computer and the data cube and the DS and all sorts of other things because the future is open. The expectation of the queerable earth is there. It's the delivery of it that's going to be the harder thing, the next challenge. Interact with the podcast on Twitter via at EOSceneFrom and using the hashtag SceneFromAbove. Thanks for listening, and that's it for now. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Alistair. Yeah, I tell you what, I'm getting overwhelmed by weather Twitter. Non-commercial creative problems. Available on freemusicarchive.org.